Hello, everybody, and thank you for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast, or should I say welcome to the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. I am one of the hosts of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast, myself and Dr. Fitz Stardust, who go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics. Now, myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine are doing this OITE review series, and we've been doing it for the past month and have gotten great feedback on it. So uh, we are continuing on with trauma. If you are a returning listener, welcome back again. If you are a new listener, hit that subscribe button. And after the episode, please leave us a review. If this is, if you're a returning listener, please leave us a review now. (laughs) We are uh, three reviews away. If you have an Apple product uh, from 100 reviews on iTunes, that would be awesome if we could get to 100 reviews by the end of the week. Please enjoy this episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Yeah, that's a good point. I remember um, some of my attendings bringing up that trochoformis starting point as well. So that is definitely something good to bring up to your upper level or your attending and have them explain that to you. And uh, moving down the femur, we are getting getting closer to the end of the femur, but on the femoral shaft. And so, you know, this is very common. You see this you, you will, or at least you should see this in your in your residency um, and, and be kind of comfortable knowing about these uh, these types of fractures, but just in general, what fractures are associated with femoral shaft fractures that can be missed up to 50% of the time? Yes, and that is uh, the femoral neck fracture. Um, and they can hide from you. We unfortunately just had a patient that uh, five weeks after their uh, femoral shaft retrograde fixation uh, came back to clinic and was like, I have hip pain. I can't walk all this stuff. And they didn't have a fall. They didn't have a new trauma, traumatic injury. And on x-ray, they had a, their femoral neck had displaced and we don't know how long it was displaced for. So now we're all kind of crossing our fingers on uh, AVN just because it seemed to have been displaced for uh, some time now because they were at five weeks post-op, but um, they are vertically oriented they will be either basy to mid cervical because of the high energy. And uh, you want to make sure that you are ruling these out uh, with a a fine cut CT scan uh, of the pelvis and every person that has a femoral shaft fracture uh, just because they can be sneaky. And in this one patient that we had, uh, I mean, they, we, we did everything right. (laughs) Unfortunately, yeah. they had their fine cut CT scan. We did that internal rotation view post or uh, on floral uh, after final fixation of the shaft, and it just it happens. And uh, yeah. but do everything you can to to prevent this. And uh, it's going to be one of those that uh, when you do have these combined fractures, you are fixing the femoral neck first, just because of the impaction from the from the nail can displace that fracture so if you at least provisionally pin it and then fix the shaft and then move back to it to finish your dhs um, you want to use two implants uh to to fix these sort of uh fractures but uh kind of moving on uh a lot of these femoral shaft fractured patients um 
they have hemorrhage, they, they may have some other uh, medical uh, issues going on, whether it's pulmonary, uh, cardiovascular issues. Uh, and do you, do you want to fix these people as early as possible or is it okay to wait uh, for a week? Yeah, I probably wouldn't wait for a week, <laughs> but I would try to fix these as early as possible. You know, they always say, uh, you know, early stabilization within 24 hours can reduce your systemic complications, you know, your your uh, pulmonary complications or your thromboembolism complications, and, and also decrease hospital costs. You can imagine how much a bed would cost if you're there for a week uh, waiting to get your femur fixed, you know. And so definitely, you know, and this is, again, kind of this concept we've been going and talking about our hip fractures, how early care is better. We talked about in, in our trauma and our basics on trauma, how, you know, we're kind of leaning towards early, uh, early, early uh, orthopedic care, early definitive management. So this is kind of another one of those, uh, another one of those areas. And uh, so what is the treatment of choice for most femoral shaft fractures? Yeah, it's a, I mean, I, I kind of think about fixation of these femoral shaft fractures as a resuscitation device or a, a resuscitation method. Um, I mean, we can give patients fluid and blood and, and all of that, but um, the stabilization of this long bone to prevent uh, kind of third spacing of the fluid is really going to help also resuscitate these patients and u- utilize less blood transfusions and, and less fluid uh, for them. But for the uh, treatment for a lot of these, it's going to be an intramedullary nail just because it's uh, it's going to be the least invasive, least periosteal stripping, um, and uh, highest chance for um, union if they are reamed and statically locked, inserted through the piriformis fossa. Those are kind of the, for testing purposes, maybe not real life, but for testing purposes, statically locked nails, you want to ream them and the piriformis fossa versus retrograde nails, just because they are the most in line with the anatomic uh, axis of the femur. Uh, that's the, those are kind of the key points there. Um, but, you know, not all, not all people ream. And so what are some of the differences between ream and unreamed nailing? Yeah. So, you know, reamed nailing, reamed versus unreamed. So when you, you know, you ream, you use a, so we'll talk a little about reaming and unreaming. So with the reaming technique, you know, reaming is associated with higher union rates and unreamed technique is, a, is associated with a decreased uh, chance of having a fat embolism. But, you know, there's some debate about out there about how clinically significant this is, you know, their decreased um, risk for having a fat embolism. And, and some points to make when you're reaming, the technique uh, to use for reaming is you want to use with sharp reamers with fluted designs. Uh, you want slow advancement and you want to uh, generate less heat. Uh, and, and this kind of gives you less embolism uh, generation. Uh, and a good article to read about, you know, learn about concepts in femoral shafts and fixing femoral shaft fractures and intramedullary nailing that goes over what we just talked about, reamed versus uh, unreamed and uh, different start points and, um, and, uh, and risk factors and complications is an article that was published in the Yellow Journal in 2009, uh, Intramedullary Nailing of Femoral Shaft Fractures, Current Concepts by Dr. Rissi. 
uh, William Ricky Rissi. I, I, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing your name or his <laughs> name and he's listening to this. So I sincerely apologize, but it was a great article nonetheless. And I've had plenty of notes from that article. Now, we mentioned um, you mentioned a piriformis fossa star. You can also, you know, start you can also start your nail on the greater choke cancer. But both of these are, are techniques uh, for anterior grade femoral nailing. So, what muscles are typically weak after anterior grade femoral nailing? Uh, so, the kind of most important ones uh, are the ones you actually have to just go dramatically right through in order to access the uh, tip of the greater trochanter, and those are the abductors. Um, that's kind of the most common. And then uh, quadriceps uh, can be weak after anti-grade uh, femur nailing. It's just a finding that's been done. I don't know exactly why, but um, you're going to have uh, more hip pain and possible abductor weakness after anterograde femur nailing and then moving distally and doing a retrograde femur nailing, you're going to have more knee pain, which uh, makes intuitive sense, but they do test you on it. And it's really just more knee pain if you go through the knee to nail and more hip pain if you go through the hip to nail. So um, what are some, uh, uh, now we're moving on to retrograde nailing. What are some of the relative indications for a retrograde nail? Yeah. And, and again, these are all relative uh indications because you could you could still anterograde nail these but the patient that has bilateral femur fractures because you can kind of prep them both in and uh, and nail them not nail them both at the same time but you don't have to like take them down and redrape um, patients that have obesity because it may be a little harder to get us to get a starting point if you have a, a large soft tissue uh, envelope um, pushing your you and your pin a little bit more uh, making you aim more medial than kind of lateral to go exactly straight down that that canal um, patients that have pregnancy uh, then this is kind of to decrease the amount of radiation uh, towards the abdominal area um, patients with an ipsilateral tibia shaft fracture because you can kind of fix both of those at the same time patients that have an ipsilateral acetabulum fracture that way you don't contaminate um you know your your uh your field or you know is is two separate approaches for two different fractures and then patients that have an ipsilateral femoral neck fracture and we spoke a little bit about earlier about fixing these, about uh, about fixing the neck first so it doesn't displace when you're doing your nail. So those are all just relative indications for retrograde uh, femur uh, nailing. Now, we did mention this before, but let's just harp on it again. When is piriformis starting point contraindicated? Yeah, and uh, it's when the fracture line extends up into the piriformis fossa. You, you're going to more log split those. You're not going to be able to ream through those and anatomically fix them. And also uh, pediatric patients. Uh, you don't want to use a piriformis start just because of the uh, blood supply to the uh, femoral neck and head. Uh, but as they kind of transition up to uh, adults, the piriformis fossa is uh, considered more of the standard of care. Um, but uh, so we talked a, a little bit about uh, that kind of anterior cortical perforation of a anterograde femur nail, but there's a, another kind of major complication that can happen if you start too anterior uh, with your anterograde nail. What what uh, what complication can you see with that? 
Yeah, so you can get increased hoop stresses as well as leading to iatrogenic uh, comminution and kind of increased hoop stress for those that don't know. Uh, I guess a good uh, metaphor would be if you uh, if you're playing basketball and your basketball is too big to go into the hoop and you're trying to force it in, you have circumferential uh, pressure or circumferential forces uh, around that rim. And it's kind of something similar if you have a nail uh, that is that's a little too big, or if you have a, a start point where, you know, where you're going is, is causing uh, increased circumferential forces that can lead to uh, comminution and increased, uh, increased hoop stresses. So uh, just uh, it's a circumferential expansile stress is kind of what this hoop stress is. And so that's dealing with piriformis fossa. What about, what are some risks associated with a trochanteric starting point? Yeah, and that, this is similar to the uh, subtroch uh, femur uh, fractures is you can get a varus malalignment and uh, medial shaft comminution. If you start too lateral, the nail won't be able to uh, kind of bend and make its way into the canal. And so what it's going to do is it's either going to blow out that medial shaft as you impact it or blow out the lateral uh, portion of the greater trochanter approximately. It's just got to make room somehow. And and those are the two places where you can see uh, iatrogenic fractures if you start out too lateral with some of these nails. Uh, that Remember, varus malalignment and medial shaft comminution versus uh, lateral uh, wall of the greater trochanter comminution. Um, uh, and then, so say you're using a troch entry uh, nail. Um, we know that the piriformis nail starts in the piriformis fossa, which is nice. Uh, what about the starting point for the trochanteric nail? Yeah, so this is going to be just lateral to the long axis of the femur. And again, some people may be proponents of this because it may be a little bit technically easier to get a starting point, especially in their obese patients. Um, but because that starting point is just lateral to the long axis of the femur, a lot of the nail designs have a proximal bend uh, that is lateral to accommodate for starting this lateral to the femur. So you don't uh, introduce malalignment to, to, you know, to the femur while you're doing these nails. Um, so we started, we talked a little bit about start points and, and some of the, you know, risks associated with the different start points, relative indications for, um, for retrograde nailing. Now, what are some indications for using an X fix in femur fractures? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, that's going to be the uh, polytrauma patient in extremis. They're, they're going to utilize more of that damage control orthopedics. So, possibly the, the bilateral femur fracture patient um, that is very unstable. You're going to do a bilateral X-fixes. Um, a very contaminated open fracture that is going to necessitate multiple debridements. Um, you can uh, X-fix those. And then uh, also those associated with the vascular injury that, that necessitates repair um, Stabilize it out to length for your vascular colleagues. Have them do the uh, the work, and then uh, you can fix it at a later date. Um, and it's really it's it's still considered safe to convert up to uh, from an X fix to an intramedullary nail uh, up to three weeks. It's not ideal, obviously, but there are uh, rare instances where uh, an X fix is is needed and utilized, and um, you can still uh, convert. A, uh, up to three weeks later. 
and then, so, I mean, I just brought up kind of severe open fractures with contamination, uh, but is uh, immediate intramedullary nailing uh, appropriate for uh, open terminal shaft fractures or should they all get external fixators? No, just like you're saying, if I think you can you can treat a lot of these open femoral shaft fractures with immediate intramedullary nailing, unless, like you were saying, there's evidence of severe contamination or canal contamination. In that case, you may want to just like you said, X fix and do serial debridement so you can kind of get that canal clean. And if there's a significant soft tissue injury, you want to make sure all that is um, okay. So, but for for the most part, you can. Uh, it is appropriate to intermedullary nail um, a lot of these open femoral shaft fractures. Now, what is the most common complication after intermedullary nailing of a comminuted femoral shaft fracture? Uh, and yeah, that that one I think is actually one of the main reasons why uh, traumatologists are sued is the malrotation. Um, you want to be cognizant that uh, a comminuted femoral shaft fracture is not malrotated uh, compared to their uh, anatomic normal. And um, a few things they kind of keep in mind, an internal rotation deformity is more common in proximal femur fractures, whereas an external rotation deformity is more common in distal femur fractures. Uh, so what you really want to do is you want to get a uh, radiographs or fluoroscopy images of their contralateral limb. You kind of uh, are screwed a little bit if they have bilateral femur fractures, but um, if they have a normal femur, um, and again, this is kind of a, it's a complex issue to, to talk about when you don't have the pictures to go over. So uh, if you don't understand how to evaluate for rotation intraoperatively, ask a senior, ask an attending, uh, and they'll go over kind of the, the preoperative images you need to obtain in order to ensure proper rotation of the, the femurs. And um, I don't know if you know it off the top of your head, I can't quite recall, but I know that there's uh, a certain deformity associated with uh, like an anti-grade nailing on a fracture table versus retrograde nailing on a uh, radiolucent flat top. And it may be the same thing that we just talked about before, where it's internal rotation is more common, malrotation on a fracture table versus external rotation on a radiolucent flat top. But I, I don't know. I, I don't want to be quoted on that because that might be opposite. Yeah. I'm not sure. I think I read somewhere that there was some difference between lateral position and supine position nailing. Um, oh, that's yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's some difference in that. And yeah, so we uh, just took a second to do a little research and we found that supine nailing uh, has a higher incidence of internal rotation and lateral nailing has a higher incidence of external rotation. Um, so that is the answer to what we were just thinking. And just a, another quick note, because a, a lot of these, they always show you like the post, uh, the post nail, uh, the post nailing like CT scans and ask you to assess the rotation, like which side is more rotated than the others. And this was a thing I was confused on for a very long period of time. But one of the ways how I've started to think about it is that uh, increased antiversion 
uh, is is like increased tibial tor- not tibial torsion, increased femoral torsion, so they'll have more intoing or more internal rotation of the limb. And on those CT scans, they typically show you a cut um, of the of the posterior condyles and then a cut of the uh, femoral neck. And they'll show you those lines and show you the angles between those. And so in my head, when you increase the antiversion, you have increased internal rotation of the, of the limb. And when you have increased retroversion, you have uh, increased external rotation of the limb. And so if you, you know, think about that, our, um, our proximal femur fractures are more likely to have an internal rotation deformity and our distal femur fractures are more likely to have an external rotation deformity. You should be able to like look at it and figure it out. I, I wish we would have, we would have thought to like uh, put a little display, but it's kind of hard to explain over a podcast. I don't know if you have any good ways to explain it. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, because they're they're always going to give you a normal side and their abnormal side, and um, it's one of those that yeah, if because uh, you have to think about it in relation to the to the distal part of the limb from the fracture site because that's what really can be manipulated uh, during a revision surgery, and so that's what they're going to get at is. Uh, if you think more about what's happening distally rather than what's happening proximally, uh, you're going to be better off because you can't really correct proximally. You'll have to rotate the entire body around the distal segment rather than just the distal uh, portion of the leg. And so, uh, like you said, with the if you have higher femoral aniversion, that is an internal rotation deformity, and you correct it by externally rotating the femur whereas if you have a retroverted uh, femoral neck compared to the condyles you have an external rotation deformity and you have to internally rotate that to correct it and one uh, last thing is uh, internal rotation deformity is better tolerated than an external rotation deformity and the way that I kind of think about it is uh, really if you're out in public and you're walking behind a lot of people, a lot of people will all automatically walk with their feet already externally rotated. And uh, I think about that is if you externally rotate them even more, then they're not going to appreciate that. But if you internally, if you malrotate them internally, they will tolerate that better than further external rotation. But um, again, it's, nice. it's tough to, it's tough to really describe through words uh, when you don't have a, a picture uh, associated with it. But uh, again, uh, always either reach out to us via email or uh, kind of do your own kind of Google search or just reach out to senior residents or attendings to help kind of explain that stuff to you. Yep, exactly. And um, moving down, I think that was a great explanation. Number one, I even learned some stuff just listening to you. But uh, continuing on, and now we shall move forward to the distal femur, the end of the big bone. Um, in patients with distal femur fractures, why or, or what should you always look for when you're getting a CT scan? What do you not want to miss when we have these patients with these, you know, commutated or intraarticular distal femur fractures? 
Yeah, it's very uh, uh, common to not see a Hoffa fragment, which is a coronal plane fracture of the uh, distal femur. Uh, It's just, it's really tough to see those on definitely an AP and even a lateral, just because a lot of trauma laterals are not uh, the best uh, radiographs that uh, uh, x-ray tech can give us. But um, the CT scan will show that coronal plane on the axial and on the sagittal cuts. And the lateral femoral condyle is the most common uh, of those fractures. And uh, the reason why it's important is uh, just like a femoral neck fracture happening with the femoral shaft, these can occur uh, fairly uh, often, up to 40% of the time. And so uh, missing an intraarticular fracture and a coronal shear fracture kind of leads them down a, a long road of post-traumatic arthritis unless that's anatomically fixed during their index procedure. Um, and uh, when uh, we we might do this in the future, I was going to bring it up with you, is talking about some AO principles and yeah. fracture fixation techniques. But what are some of these general principles when you are talking about an intraarticular femur fracture rather than an extraarticular or a femoral shaft fracture? Yeah. So again, you know, taking it way back to uh, to trauma principles, we're we're talking about uh, we're talking about you know primary bone healing and articular reduction. You want the articular to reduce the primary bone healing, or via you know kind of this cutting cone technique with Herversian canals. Uh, you can read up on that a little bit more, or we will have an episode in the future um, going over some kind of these trauma basics, probably in our basic principles. Uh, in our basic principle series. Um, but again, it's going to be articular reduction. Okay. You want that to heal by primary bone healing and then stable fixation of that articular block to the shaft. Okay. So in many of these cases, you have an intraarticular fragment and you have a lot of high comminution in your metaphyseal fragment. So in many cases, you know, you want that that articular fragment to heal with primary bone healing, and then you'll be aiming for uh, secondary bone healing uh, or endochondral ossification for the metaphyseal segment. But you want to make sure your overall alignment uh, is is okay and is correct. And um, and since we're talking about alignment and we're talking about kind of how we think about fixing these fractures, if you're fixing a distal femur fracture with a non-locked plate, so you're plating with a non-locked plate, what is the deformity typically seen? Just like every other thing is varus. You want to avoid ferrous, like it's no one's business. I don't, I mean, outside of a hip reduction in a CP patient, you, you don't want to varus anything. So, um, when you, when you don't have a fixed angle device, such as a non-locked distal femur plate, uh, you do run that risk just because the, uh, mechanical access of the, femur is going to be medial to the anatomic axis of the femur. And so as those forces go through medial to the anatomic axis, it's just going to want to bend that plate and cause that distal femur fracture to fall into varus. So uh, fixed angle devices are uh, kind of uh, the gold standard for these distal femur fractures outside of using a retrograde nail, which we'll get to here in in a bit here. But uh, uh, that's the type of plating that you are uh, wanting to see in a distal femur fracture with metaphyseal involvement is that fixed angle uh, plating. Um, and uh, kind of next 
up is uh, should you use one of these 95 degree uh, uh, like blade plates for an intraarticular distal femur fracture uh, or, uh, or is there a concern associated with the, these fixed angle plates? Yeah. So, you know, if you're thinking of looking at or using a 95 degree uh, plate for treating these intraarticular distal femur fractures, you have to make sure that there is not an associated Hoffa fragment or a fragment of that, that kind of posterior or that coronal plane of fragment that's more commonly seen in the lateral condyle. And, you know, you, that, you know, that would be a contraindication. So if you have a associated Hoffa fragment, um, treating this with a blade plate is a contraindication. And most people would choose locked plating because it offers the advantage of multiple points of fixation in different planes. And you're able to kind of capture that Hoffa fragment with uh, with one of those screws or, or sometimes, you know, patient, I mean, uh, surgeons will also uh, put in an ADP uh, screw to capture that Hoffa fragment. And another thing to, to note about lock plating and uh and blade plating or 95 degree plates is that lock plating is actually five times more expensive than blade plating that is just a fun fact i don't know if that'll ever be tested it might who knows but just so you know lock plating is around five times more expensive than blade plating now so we've been talking about locked plating uh but what is what is hybrid locked plating in the context of, of distal femur fracture fixation yeah, so uh, I mean, when you when people talk about locked plating versus non-locked, they they typically mean every single screw in the plate is locked versus every single screw in the plate is non-locked. And uh, we know that uh, orthopedics is much more than just that sort of black and white uh, binary thinking, where um, a hybrid locked plating is you're utilizing the plate and screws in different ways so that you can use the lock screws distally to provide a fixed angle fixation, but you're also using some of the non-lock screws to, to help control the plate and the bone and use it as a reduction tool uh, to help provide uh, more anatomic fixation. And um, plates with a, a longer working length uh, allow for stable yet flexible fixation rather than placing two locked screws very close to each other around a fracture site, which will lead to less flexibility at the fracture and a less chance of that uh, metaphyseal comminution from uh, healing. So uh, a lot of times you're you're using these plates in, in variable ways and more hybrid ways to, to kind of control the bone in a way that you see fit for proper healing. Um, and then uh, talking about plate stiffness, because we know that either different manufacturers or different uh, uh, metals that the plates are made out of, does the uh, increased or decreased plate stiffness lead to healing with a comminuted uh, distal femur fracture? Yeah. So, so just like what you were saying, uh, you know, the decreased stiffness leads to healing. You want, again, we're going back to, you know, trauma-basic principles and that metaphyseal um, uh, region that you know, can be comminuted in a lot of these patients. You want, you're wanting, your, your goal is to try to get us to heal with secondary intention or endochondral ossification. So you don't want to make too stiff of a construct. We can there, then it would be, you know, no, no micromotion or not much motion at that at that side of all that comminution, which could lead to a non-union. So you want at least a little bit of motion. So you want to de decrease stiffness with that would lead to healing. Now, now say you're, you're using, go ahead. 
It said sexy and flexy. <laughs> I like that. Well, I'm going to use that in our, our fracture conference and, and see what uh, see what people say. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what? So, say you know you're going in and you're fixing these and you're putting in your your distal screws and 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 it looks great. You're on X-ray, you're getting fluoral shots, and you say, "Oh man, this is this is definitely a, a 70 screw here uh, in this distal femur." Uh, I, I use a depth gauge and everything, and this is and it looks great on a on the on the AP X-ray of the distal femur. Uh, is there any other views you want to assess before you go ahead and put that 70 screw in that distal femur? Yeah, so the distal femur on an axial uh, cut is more trapezoidal shape, and uh, the the slope of the medial distal femur is around 25 degrees, and the slope of the lateral distal femur is around 10 degrees. And so um, as you're kind of placing these screws across, uh, the more posterior screws are going to be the true length of the femur rather than these more anterior screws. If you don't get that 25 degree internal rotation or having the C arm uh, kind of come 25 degrees over the top, uh, you might run the risk of having these screws that on the AP look to be appropriate length, but on that internal rotation view, they can be around uh, two to three centimeters too long. So you want to make sure you get that over the top view so that you get a down the line access of that medial distal femoral uh, trapezoid. Uh, I mean, it's not as important for the lateral just because the plates are more commonly on the lateral side. So it you don't run the risk of screw penetration out laterally, but uh, it just know that it's a it's a trapezoidal shape and you want to kind of see arm over the top. But uh, what are uh, some of the uh, uh, pitfalls with plate fixation for distal femur fractures? Yeah, and um, this is uh, this is a at least very tested um, a tested subject, and they ask you that, and it has real life applications too. But so one, if your plate is too anterior, you can have unicortical screws. Okay, so you, you don't you don't want your plate to be too anterior. If it's too posterior, you can have screws that go into the intercondylar notch. And also, if it's too posterior, you can have a, that golf club deformity. And that's because the plate is pressing against that projection of the lateral uh, femoral condyle. And when that plate, you know, goes all the way down, it medializes the distal or that condylar segment causing that golf club deformity. And that's when your plate is too posterior. Um, also, if your plate is too distal, you can also get this, this kind of a golf club deformity because the convex part of the plate pushes the condyles medial. And then if it's too distal, you can also have intraarticular screw placement. And then if it's too flex or extended, uh, you can have unicortical screws if it's too flex or if it's too extended, you can have a, a end up with the posterior thrust. And uh, to learn a little bit more about this, we have a, a, a podcast episode with Dr. Uh, Spitler, he, who uh, went in depth about uh, distal femur fractures, way to fix it, and, um, and a lot more, uh, a lot of other, uh, of other things about the distal femur. So, you know, what are some of the risk factors for failure of locked plating uh, of distal femur fractures. So which of these are, what are risk factors that are going to lead you towards, oh man, this may fail, this locked plate? Uh, so for one, open fractures, uh, really because of soft tissue stripping. I mean, when you're, when you're thinking about these locked plating, um, 
and even retrograde nails too. Uh, the idea is to kind of touch the fracture, the zone of fracture as little as possible, but if they're open, they are going to have a lot more soft tissue stripping, which is going to put a lot more stress on the fixed angle constructs because it's not going to, uh, form as much bone as quickly as it otherwise, uh, should with a closed fracture. And then other things that are just bad for fractures in general, diabetes, smoking, increased BMI, and a short plate length or short working length will just put a lot of stress on a very concentrated portion of the plate because you are working with such a small plate that uh, that can cause a, a failure of the lock plating as well. Um, but uh, we know that lock plating is not the only treatment used for this, that you can also uh, retrograde nail these. And so uh, what sort of uh, patients and cases are you going to do uh, that for? Yeah, you know, patients that well, one more thing on that lock plate and all that, you know, everything that you just mentioned, those those risk factors um, for the failure. Uh, you know, I think that's based out of a, a study that was published in the, the Journal of Orthopedic Trial back in 2014, uh, entitled Risk Factors for Failure of Lock Plating of Lock Plate Fixation of Distal Femur Fractures by, again, Dr. Risi. And again, I hope I am not butchering your last name, uh, sir. That is unintentional. Um, so, and again, we're talking about cases where you may actually do an intermedullary nail. Uh, these are going to be, you know, your extraarticular fractures. Um, and then some, um, some, uh, I know some attendings that, that will still nail um, some intraarticular fractures if it has a, a simple split after articular segment reduction with screw fixation, and then they'll still nail uh, those fractures. But I, you know, I think the, the book answer would be, you know, these extra articular fractures are the ones that, that can be treated with intramedullary nailing. Um, yeah. And I, I, yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah. And it's, I don't know. A lot of this is uh, trying to just educate the, the masses, not necessarily on OIT or board review stuff, but uh, because of the uh, kind of capacious nature of the distal femur, um, We'll get to, to polar screws and blocking screws, I think more with the proximal tibia portion, but uh, don't be afraid to use those just because they they can be very useful in kind of decreasing the volume for which the fixation pathway for a nail is going to reside. And uh, it really help uh, healing rates and, and assist in reduction. So um, making sure that you have a good starting point and and not shying away from from blocking screws just because they uh, uh, of how large that distal femoral segment is compared to the size of the nail. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And those are all um, solid points to be made on uh, distal femur. And I think we have done it. I think we have gone through from the top of the femur to the bottom of the femur for our trauma review series. And uh, um, next uh, we will uh, get to some, um, some patella and lower extremity things in the, uh, in the next episode. So thank everybody for tuning in. All right. We hope y'all enjoyed listening to this episode. It was a little bit longer than our normal ones. I try to make them 30 minutes, but I thought this was just going so well. So we made it a little bit longer. Uh, if you are a first-time listener and this is your first time listening to an episode, hit that subscribe button and please go and leave us a review in iTunes. Also, please tell one other person about this podcast. That would help us get the word out and follow us on 
Instagram at Nailed It Ortho, as well as Facebook, as well as YouTube. Come on, we have all three. Nailed It Ortho, we keep it very simple. Um, you know, it is a very, uh, very routine way to find us. All right, until next episode.